we've been told when we went to San Francisco um, last last uh, spring, met with a lot of people in the space, companies we potentially work with in the future, and they saw our product and they were sure we were in our A or B round. And they were sure we had spent at least $3 million to build what we had at the time. That's And, and, that's and what was we the reality? The reality is that we, at the time, we hadn't even spent 40% of our, 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 our money. Welcome to Montreal Startups, a show where we cover local, innovative, fast-growing companies and the inspiring stories behind them. On today's show, we talked to Chris DeFour, co-founder and CMO of the innovative workforce management platform, WorkAxle. Quick show of hands. How many of you had a part-time job working at a fast food place or retail store when you were younger? If you did, you surely remember having to message your coworker, asking him to switch a shift with you, only to find out they're already working on that day. Or you may remember emailing your boss, asking him to send you a picture of the schedule because you forgot what days you're supposed to be working that week. These scheduling issues not only cause headaches for the employee, but they're also extremely frustrating for the store manager creating the schedule. There are quite a few platforms out there addressing the problem of workforce management with software solutions, but leave it to three squash playing, hardworking friends to investigate the space and not only come up with a better solution, but build it using a technique that challenges the very core of how startups operate. And did I mention these guys like to play squash? I started playing squash at around age 12 and really got into that, into the competitiveness of the sport. And so, um, Shortly after that, uh, two years, I'd say, I got good enough that I was able to get recruited to go to the States and play in, in prep school. So I did that for four years. I what, got, what state were you in? in the I US? was in Connecticut, Lakeville, Connecticut. So about five hours from Montreal. Interesting enough, I would be gone like four months at a time, six months at a time. So I'd come back three, four times a year. And when came time to you know do the whole university in the States, well, you know, with the US dollar and all, it uh, it went south a bit, so it didn't really make any sense for a Montrealer to be spending crazy amounts of money on education in the States. So ultimately, I came back. And after being in the States for four years, I really got exposed to a lot of my friends' parents and uh, a lot of my friends, too, uh, just a bunch of different characters there. Um, and it really made me hungry. So it made me gave me a really strong work ethic. Um, so I came back. Uh, I'd stayed really close friends with my best friend named Mark. And we told each other, hey, let's let's start a business. So at 19, right back from the States, started a business. Uh, we decided to go into e-commerce. So it uh, happens that my mom, um, she's uh, in charge of sales and marketing for um, a, a homeopathic and holistic product company. What, what year is that in? I was in 2012. So yeah, so I left for the States in 2008, got back in 2012 and started that. Um, and while I was doing like more of the technical stuff, Mark would be doing all the, 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 the more business, back office stuff, uh, taxes, uh, business development. Um, so while we were doing this e-commerce uh, stuff, well, I learned to build websites. I learned to do SEO. I learned how to attract buyers. Uh, at a certain point, we were getting a, a five to 10 orders a week. And this was just from organic traffic. Just, yeah. just before we get too much into scaling, building your websites, um, I just want to touch back on something that's very interesting that I didn't know about you. So you you played squash rather competitively at a young age in in the United States. What was that experience like? Where you you had tournaments, uh, and what did that teach you of of playing competitive squash in the U.S. Yeah, I, I left for the States when I was number one in Quebec for my division. And then I went to the States because there was more competition out there. You know, I'd play against Egyptians, Indians, um, people from all around the world. Very phenomenal. Each had their different perspectives on the sport. Um, and it was really a fun time. Uh, Did you hang up the racket or are you still playing? I still play here and there. And it's funny, one of the new companies uh, I started two years ago now, Sasquatch is based around that. We're four guys who met playing squash, and we love uh, software and marketing. So I think I think we'll touch on that a little <laughs> bit. Um, okay, so it's it's 2014. You are 
at John Molson School of Business. Um, 2012. 2012 yeah. and, and onwards. And, and you're close with your friend Mark and you guys are building websites for mm-hmm. companies. Now, building websites is, is nothing new or unique. What was your vision for scaling that business at that point? And was that what you wanted to do going forward? How did you see your career progressing at that stage? Okay, so at the start, um, we we simply knew we had a skill and we could we could pump out quality work quick, like pretty quickly. Uh, what we didn't know was how to set up the business in terms of you know client size, number uh, number of clients you want to take on at once, what types of clients to take on at once, all that. So what we did is we just looked around at all the competitors in Montreal. You know, simple Google searches, you'll find out who's who's dominating the space in your area. And we um, found that, like at, at the time in 2012, they were all charging five to ten thousand dollars for their site. Okay, and what we noticed when we went and started prospecting was that for most, you know, service-oriented businesses or uh, small businesses, uh, five grand out of their cash flow is not reasonable at most of the time, right? It's not every business that can just take out, pull that out, and. And pay for a new, brand new website, especially when they know of all these, you know, build them yourself, DIY, uh, DIY, WordPress uh, and yeah, Wix, and- Wix stuff like Wix. So what was really important was to differentiate ourselves from from that. And what we, well, personally, I, I've read a lot of books that have just talked about the power of recurring income. You know, so if you can charge, if you can. You know, afford to to charge your client in chunks instead of all at once, and then you can be patient on building that cash flow. It makes a lot more sense to go that route. So, we we did exactly that. We we actually made it so that our first website we charged uh, let's say a thousand. I think it was a thousand dollars. Every website after that, we were charging between fifty and three hundred bucks a month um, for the design of the website and the maintenance of the website and for coaching monthly coaching calls, so this is something no one else is doing. Yeah, that that I I think that is big for uh, being able to offer clients such a cheap entry point and much more digestible for exactly what you said. A client that cannot afford to shell out a huge chunk of cash to build a website. Hey, why don't we spread this out? And the the value is that now you have almost a team that you could refer to on a monthly basis. Uh, rather than just building the website all at once, and then that the 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 company that built that website just disappears. So so how did so that took a little bit of foresight on on your guys's part to have that patience to spread out that income and just build the monthly revenue stream. We're very very fortunate that we were in a position where we were still studying and we were we weren't in a rush to to build a cash flow. So it, it was done right from day one. Um, and every client we've had since has stayed with us. Uh, and clients that have left, we've we've told them to leave because they don't match our culture. Um, what did you call that that business? Dev Buddy. That's Dev Buddy. Yeah. So we think like where we got that name, we're just like, well, everyone's got development problems when it comes to web design or marketing or business development. Well, we'll be your buddy when it comes to that. Uh, and we'll hold your hand. We'll, we're, we're that turnkey service you can just go to, and you know you'll uh, you'll get your money's worth. Yeah, someone someone could build a website for between fifty and three hundred dollars a month. Um, yeah, that's that seems like something that's very enticing for a lot of businesses. So, uh, so you have Dev Buddy going at this time. You're in school, focusing on on graduating, but still servicing clients at the same time. So I imagine you're quite busy. Is there anything else you're working on at this time? No, we just went with the flow. We're very patient and just kept acquiring uh, new clients uh, all the way up till uh, when I graduated. And by the time I graduated, I think we were at uh, 40, 40 clients. And um, after that, we slowed down. I took a role um, with Mark. We we both took a role at a hunting and fishing magazine. Where I handled marketing for them, and Mark handled more operations. What's that magazine called? Aventure Chasse Pêche. It's a nice Quebec yeah. Indian fishing magazine. Je parle français. Oui, That's, <laughs> c'est très important. <laughs> oui. <laughs> so you so you take you graduate and you're still running Dev Buddy, but you say okay, 
maybe I should take a job with an established company as well. Um, yeah, build provide- a, build a little bit of a track record outside of my own company, and also it's always great to have a salary and not just be paid through dividends or stuff like that to build your credit as someone young. So uh, we knew that it was important to do exactly that. And so, yeah, for two years, I'd say we worked there, and then we moved on to. So, what was your role at Chess Chess Epeche? You were doing marketing. What was your day to day like at that point? Okay, so I came in at a point where the company was just acquired, um, and the mandate it was a two year mandate, and it was pretty simple. Well, not not simple, but simple for people like us who who like the web and like marketing online. Um, it was to take a, a paper magazine with forty thousand subscribers and a you know an old uh, two thousand two HTML website. And it had a lot of traffic, and and kind of bring it into the new age. So, uh, you know, make the website mobile responsive, uh, grow the Facebook page, uh, grow the subscriber list, implement automation um, with our marketing, um, take the paper magazine, turn it into a digital version, build a whole platform for that. So those are all activities we did throughout two years. Build digital subscriptions as exactly, well. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I I was in charge of building all that stuff, and I leveraged the skills I acquired by building DevBuddy. So you stayed there for two years. Mm-hmm. You're you're doing the magazine. You still have DevBuddy going at this point, right? Because I want to make sure we keep tabs here on on <laughs> how many projects you have going at the same time. Because knowing you, I know you're a guy that likes to juggle a lot of different projects, and I think that's that's pretty important to the story here. Um, so what's next? Okay, so. All these thing, these new projects happen organically. We don't go looking for them. Uh, it's really just stuff we're, we're passionate about and stuff we've always had in the back of our minds uh, as things we wanted to do. So, me personally, uh, growing up in the age of you know seeing Facebook go from not existing to being you know swallowing the internet whole. <laughs> Same with Google. Uh, you look at Look at Uber, uh, Snapchat, at these, all these companies are. Tech what, what, what's the the recurring theme? Software, right? So, really wanted from a young age, wanted to go into software because I was like, that's that's where fun things, big things are happening. And it just excites me. So, um, I always knew I wanted to get into that space, but I also knew I didn't want to be. I wanted to be complementary to the space of, of developing software. I don't want to be the actual one coding it in. Is that I don't think my mind works that way, and it's it's probably not it's not suitable for who I am. Right. Um, so what do you do when when you don't have all the elements within your own team? Well, you have to ex- either extend your team, you know, or find partners. So uh, I have a great another my second best friend uh, pretty much. Started playing squash with him, Matt. Uh, he did the exact same thing as me um, in the states. We learned we we learned to play squash together. He went off to another school named Groton. So he's uh, from Montreal as well, but also got a also went to the states to play squash. Exactly, like wow. same. Pretty much, we have the same life story, <laughs> except uh, he de- uh, developed skills in uh, computer programming and uh, software architecture, uh, and I did the same, but in marketing and business development. So, so complementary skills. Super complementary, but you know, when we got both got, it's funny we both got back to Canada the same year. Started at Concordia the same year. He went into engineering, and uh, you know, for the first three years, we'd see each other, you know, every few months. And I'd be like, "Hey, Matt, let's software. Let's do some something with software." Uh, and uh, it took four years. It took four, four years, years of poking for, him. Of poking him, yeah. And then he, he he got an appetite for the entrepreneurship. Uh, he started making his own websites for for, for clients. I, I told told him all about WordPress, and he got a, an appetite for for building business. So I was like, Matt, uh, let's start a business, and let's I can do marketing. You can do the software. Mark can handle the accounting and the finance. Let's put that all in a box, and let's you know. Do the same thing, but in, in another company. We'll, we'll call it Sasquash, because we all met playing squash, and we love service as a software. Sasquash. Um, Sasquash. So that see, that's a uh, that's a new business. We start a new project, but 
it's something that we always wanted to do, Mark always wanted to do, and I'm sure Matt too always wanted to do. So just uh, to clarify, Sasquatch yeah. builds software platforms, products for clients on a contract basis. Exactly, yeah. So either software, um, custom marketing, um, custom development strategies, uh, pretty much any, anything in the marketing or software space. Um, what I do is I'm able I because of my experience with DevBuddy is I'm able to outsource and and you know find appropriate freelancers to do jobs if capacity goes too high. Um, so I have a good network of partners, and Matt has the same thing when it comes to software, um, which is even more of a. It's, I can we can get into how complicated that is, but Matt's damn good at it. <laughs> I'm so. sure we all have an idea about that. <laughs> yeah. So just to keep the running tally going now, so there's uh, the magazine, yeah. Dev Buddy, now Sasquatch comes into the picture, yeah. and you're juggling all these things at the same time, almost freshly out of university, is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, And then uh, we're forgetting one, which is Work Axle, which happened around the same time as uh, Sasquatch. So Work, work Axle, yeah. uh, good that you brought that up, is, is mostly what we're here to talk about because uh, Work Axle is a very interesting project. At what point did you say, I'm not busy enough, let's add something else on our plate here? Okay, well, it wasn't... I would say that Sasquatch and Work Axle happened at the same time, so I don't keep them separate. So, you know that you know in the service business, the the business model is kind of hunt and kill if you're not doing something like we're doing in DevBuddy. So you know you have to go find a client, you do that client the, the, the mandate, and then it's over, and you got to go find another client, and then you just have to keep restarting that cycle. Where does that not happen? It, ha- it doesn't happen in in Services as a software because you can build a a product that can generate a recurring income stream, um, and so we we really differentiate Sasquatch from Work Axle in saying that Sasquatch is our lifestyle service business. That you know it might be inactive for one year, two years, three years at a time at some point in our lives, uh, and it might come back on, or it might be the thing we ultimately focus on most in 10, 20 years, but. Right it'll now. always be there. It, it'll always be there. It's a lifestyle business. And then Work Axle is our, our product business. I mean, we're trying to really make something out of it. We really want to put it out into the world and, and grow the thing. So tell us about the birth of the concept of, of Work Axle. How, how did that get off the ground? What was the, the day like where uh, this idea started forming and you guys decided to all get together and, and push this forward? Okay, so we we were introduced to the idea by some people we were working with um, in the past that me and Mark uh, and we introduced the idea to Matt, and th- the whole idea was that there's a hole in the shift work industry where w- we would notice when we go to Tim Hortons or McDonald's or uh, Subway or Dagwoods or even a car dealership that, that the employees kind of seem. There's no central, there's no centralization of processes for these employees, or of communication, or of hiring, um, and so when you when you look at that and you see you know you're you're driving in front of a Tim Hortons and you see Nous en Beauchamp, or you you know you see these big walls and Nous en Beauchamp send an email here, all these things that we thought we think could be you know digitalized, optimized. Uh, centralized um, and reduce burden for for managers and the employees themselves. Those are all things we thought we could package into one product so to make work better, to make the workplace better. So the idea started with, okay, we're going to fix the process of hiring for these locations. That quickly we realized that made no sense because you can't, we, we can't try and go and be like, let's say the Tinder of, of, uh, of hiring for part-time work if we don't have 10,000 businesses on our platform. You know what I mean? Because you won't have enough of an inventory of openings. To, to, to right. you, you got to build a marketplace almost. Right. So so in, we went away from that idea and we moved into scheduling, employee scheduling, time in attendance, um, change request management, um, timesheet exporting, um, internal communication, 
broad, uh, employee broadcasts, um, employee reviews, employee tagging, all these things that help a manager make better or more data-driven decisions. Because right now what we notice that before we even started writing a line of code for this product, we actually sat down with over, well, not me, but Matt did at the start. He was really the one who was asking all the questions. He sat down with over 150 managers or business owners. And he'd ask them very simple questions, like, how do you schedule? Do you use software or do you use pen and paper? Do you use Excel? Most of them were on Excel or pen and paper. Then we'd ask, okay, how many hours do you spend a week doing this? And then we'd find out just crazy numbers. And then we just did the math and we we're like, wow, this, this shouldn't be a lot of savings here if something's done about this pro problem. If we take it from Excel or from pen and paper and we put it into a nice machine, well, it would do wonders for both the manager, the employee, and the organization that runs it all. So you did a, a lot of research uh, before you jumped into this this project. You have these ideas going around in your head saying that there is an area that could be improved here. Let's let's validate that. Mm -hmm. Now your research points that there is room for improvement here. A lot of the way managers manage their workforce is uh, old school. Even if they're using pen and paper or Excel, they're still that's still not as efficient as it could be. So what do you guys say next? How do you tackle a problem like this? Because there's a lot of different elements here to this platform. So where do you begin and identify where to start, what's most important, what we should focus on first? Okay, so we understood that scheduling was a big burden for managers. So we started we started really there. But the problem is, is that if you, you look, you might hear, oh, we do, we do employee scheduling. Uh, you're going to say, oh, they're like... There's 20 of those. There's uh, there's 20 of those SaaS companies that exist. Uh, what are they inventing? Um, and you'd be right if we we did it like everyone else. But we took a different route, and the way we built our scheduling system um, actually came from one of our our beta testers, or someone we surveyed early in the start, and he told us, you know, you know, most scheduling tools you'll have. Uh, names on the left and days on the top and then you just drag and drop the names and and it's it's supposed to, it's called the automated scheduling no it's it's really not because it ends up taking on the, the manager a lot more time uh, so so what we did is we turned the act of scheduling into a bit of the, the act of choosing who's on your, your 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 hockey team who's playing the game tonight you know so, you like know, a roster, like a roster, setting a, st a starting lineup. Exactly. So we call it intelligent rostering, um, where the way our system works is we're just going to let the manager define their shifts in a given week and the requirements of that shift. So let's say a shift starts and it's from uh, 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. and it's every weekday, and you know you need two hostesses, three people in the kitchen. Uh, and uh, in our system, you can go even further than that, and you can go and say, "I have this server, and this server is a key holder. This server is uh, uh, great on Fridays." This, you know, so you can get very granular in your scheduling. So when you go to schedule, once you've made all of your requirements, you're not actually you don't have to think of the logic. Our system is going to go and it's going to tell you who should work based on how many hours they worked in the month. If they're going over the labor cost target for the week, the day, or the month, um, and it turned basically what we've seen is 90, 90 to ninety five percent reduction in the time it takes our clients to schedule. And, and so, not only the time it takes for for your clients to schedule, but from from my understanding, there's a lot of analytics that come out of of this platform as well, right? To give the management more insight into which employees produce the highest revenue on that shift. Yeah, how how valuable is that to to a company? Oh, very. Because, like you just said, you know, on a, in a in a busy bar, or a busy restaurant, um, the Friday night, or you know, holidays or big events, they bring in a lot of money, and they want to make data driven decisions on who should be working that night and what the shifts should look like, and so our system helps tell them that because we what we do is we'll pull in POS data. 
um, and we'll compare it with the labor cost data. So we have a breakdown of who's bringing in what money in any given time timestamp, um, and we have the data of how much that employee is costing by the minute. Um, so that allows us to show our clients in the analytics tab their their labor cost over their sales, total sales for any Just given the time period. Metrics that allow them to make exactly. better decisions. So they can adjust, you know, if the if the labor cost is is going way up, you know, uh, at three p.m., they can they know to cut someone off. Um, same thing with sales. If they see that they could be making more sales because it's it's really packed and they don't have enough staff, will they bring someone in? So uh, we also do other stuff where we're, we're trying to implement. Um, this is more in our product roadmap, but it's it's stuff we've that should be coming out in 2019, where we're going to be implementing a, a bit of AI into um, um, our communication tool, um, prescriptive uh, prescriptive analytics, um, where basically we'll tell we'll be telling business owners what they should be doing based on the data their system collects. Um, and this will be sometimes on a, the way our product is, is that it, it does 80% of the job for really large organizations and the, the remaining 20%, we can build it out to match the organization. Cause you, when you get to, you know, multi-location businesses that have over, I don't know, four, 300, 400, 500 employees, um, it, it's, your system's never going to have it all. So you're building a pretty heavy software platform here that requires a lot of development work. How are you guys funding this in the early stages? And how, what does that look like? Um, we got angel funding from someone in the pharmaceutical industry uh, pretty early on because he saw a huge need for, for the scheduling tool when it comes to scheduling lab technicians uh, for preclinical uh studies. So he saw a huge uh, need in the, in the pharma so space. This, this is an angel investor. Was there a reason why he decided to go the, the angel route versus the VC route? Yeah, because at the start you don't like you don't need there's no need to go VC if you want to be in charge of your own uh, your, your own board and your well your own your own division for the product, right? So right. we were fortunate enough that um, this investor saw a direct need, and uh, he gave us pretty much free vision over over the product. Uh, How did you find this this investor? This is someone we used to play squash with in, in the U.S. In, in, no, in in Canada. In okay, who watched us grow up playing squash and would be in leagues, play play in squash leagues, uh, Matt and I and. Uh, yeah, that's how Matt, Matt ultimately is the one who secured the secured it. Yeah, and how how much did he put up in the beginning? Uh, he put up uh, six hundred thousand. No, five hundred thousand. Yeah, five hundred thousand yeah. dollars. So that's your your first amount of money that you raise mm-hmm. five hundred thousand dollars from an angel investor, and that gives you some runway, right? Yeah. Now, well, yeah. yeah, you're building a pretty heavy platform. Um, how how do you manage the whole development of this platform? Because there's there's a lot of parts that you're building here. It's you guys are three co-founders, from what I understand, on this mm-hmm. project. Are you hiring? Are you growing your dev team? How do you manage all that? Well, like I said, Matt, um, CEO of Workaxle, he's he used to work at IBM. He used to work on big projects, uh, lots of way more moving parts than our project. Um, and so, and he had an experience of you know centralizing processes for large organizations. So, um, to him, building a product like WorkAxel is like nothing new necessarily. Um, it's just that he gets to do it his way with the newest technologies, and so you know what I mean. Um, Matt and I would work on you know what features to develop. Why uh, is there a business case for it? We talk with uh, customers, pilots we have, and um, Matt would then execute. So. We have a team of, at any given time, we can have up to 13 developers on a full pin. Um, these are all outsourced um, out, out of the country. 
So Matt is kind of like a systems architect from from how you described it. And he has a team of offshore developers that that he communicates with and assigns different projects to and is able to manage the tasks that they're working on and able to get a good sense of how much time and cost it should take to develop a certain piece of of code. Is that approach to, to building your startup, now that's different from raising a ton of capital and hiring in-house developers full time, giving them equity packages with with vesting plans and all that. It's 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 a different approach. Is that something you recommend to other startups to do? I mean, if you're able to get find an angel investor who who, who sees the value in your product, sure. Uh, if you know what you're doing, but you better know what you're doing because uh, development. If you outsource and you don't know what you're doing, it could take you for a wild ride. And I, I would never do it alone. So. Uh, I let Matt. I trust Matt with that. He's he's world class at that. I'd say, um, and that what's that's what makes it okay. So I would only only ever recommend that to to a team that had a a, a tech, highly technical founder within it. Because you could get burnt from yeah. You're better off trying to find a a co-founder with with technical skills to join your team, or else it's it's. I would say if you're going into software space, pretty dangerous. But so if you if you do have that highly technical, a lot of experience co-founder, what are the advantages of doing it that way? That that come, um, come out of this? Like you said, if I if we were to do, well, it's simple. Let's say you ask for uh, a feature a feature to be built in your product, and uh, it's delivered, but you know you go to play with it and it doesn't do exactly what you want. You go back to your your developer and you say like you try and explain what you want. You try and tell that it's broken, and you know they might tell you like no, it's fine. That's what you asked for, and you don't know how to give them instructions if you don't know how they think. You know what I mean? And they're always tech, typically going to do exactly what you ask for and nothing else. Right. And so that feature that you know should have cost two grand can end up costing six grand and take three times the amount of time to build out. But how, what does that do to your business? You know, your business can't. If you're a young startup, you can't afford that. So, but the, so that's the downside of of doing it. But but you guys have that person on your team that could manage this this offshore team. So how has that benefited you as a startup being able to build your product this way? We've been told when we went to San Francisco um, last last uh, spring, met with a lot of people in the space, companies we potentially work with in the future, and they saw our product and they were sure we were in our A or B round, and they were sure we had spent at least three million dollars to build what we had at the time. That's and, and, that's and what was we the reality? The reality is that we at the time we hadn't even spent. Uh, Forty percent of our our our, our money uh, of your seed round, yeah, and this is because of how Matt was so f- very accurate with with budgeting the development work and with the offshore development work. Yeah, so example, um, like I gave you an example where the, the outsourcer could take you for a ride. Okay, well Matt could call that he could call that out right away and be like, no, and why no, and then he could say, yeah, well. You're gonna make it up next month in these ways, or you know, bye, type of thing. Move on to the next team. Yeah, because there's there are developers everywhere. If you know how to find them, they're they're everywhere. But they're not necessarily in your town or your city. You know, your city or or country. <laughs> so it's it's a really it's a really valuable skill that you have being able to identify uh, which development team to work with, and then knowing when they're giving you the good work. On the right speed, at the right pace, at the right cost, uh, and that resulted in being able to build a product faster and cheaper than you would have had been able to otherwise. And I guess that came out when you were in San Francisco and you were at these shows. It just goes to show that you built a product for half of what you raised in your seed round that others thought might have cost you three or four million dollars to build. Mm-hmm. So that that's that that allows you to get a lot further and stretch your capital that you're raising. So have you raised any other mo- money since then? Yeah, because now we're at the point where we've, at the start we we didn't 
anticipate that our product would be enterprise level ready. But we pivoted about eight months ago and decided to do it just to go and not try and compete with um, all those other scheduling tools you see out there who who are great for businesses that have, uh, let's say, under 100 employees per location. We want to really net, like own the market where it's a, over 100 employees per location. So if, to do that, you need to build an enterprise great tool. And so we we've spent most of the um, initial money and then we just we well we knew our runway and all that so we went out looking for more another round another, another, another round well not another it's not a round it's just more more investment from someone who gets it and so we went we found someone else in pharmaceuticals but in the states so we now we have two investors um, and we're, we're about to finish our, our second round right now um, for another six hundred thousand. So you're raising another six hundred thousand yeah. for a total of one point one million, around. Yeah, and we we think we we don't want to raise. We, we're not hundred percent sure if we ever want to raise after this, and we won't probably won't need to, because wow. the way we've built the, the business is that it's according to our plan right now we break even in a year and a half or two, and that's like not by doing anything magical, nothing fancy, conservative numbers. Yeah, and because we have businesses on the side that pay us and, and so we can eat and stuff, you know what I mean? So you don't need <laughs> to take out a heavy salary. Exactly, and we don't need to be, uh, we don't need to make short-term decisions, which is what most startups need to do because like you asked me before, uh, why didn't you go with VC? Because I don't want to make short-term decisions. Like I don't want to have someone breathing down my neck every day. Uh, is that is that what you feel? Because again, in your second round, uh, you mentioned you found another investor in the pharmaceutical space in the U.S. So you, we could call it another angel investment. Mm, exactly. So two two investment rounds you raised now, both through angels. I'm sensing a trend here. What makes you want to stay away from VCs at this point? Well, it's not stay away from them. It's just we don't think we're at, at the right time where it would be optimal for us to take on VCs. So what is that right optimal time? What's if let's say we hit a point where we're growing and and to get to the next stage of growth we need a big injection, well then we can talk about it and then the terms will be much more favorable for us as a company. We won't we won't have to give away as much equity. So it's all it's all that and it's also about building a stellar product. Like we, it's all about our product because if our product's good, our company's the rest will follow because the rest is all in order. Um, but yeah, in software. That's that's number one, and what happens usually is that your pressure that you'll get from your investors will cause that you don't bring your product in the right direction, or that you take shortcuts. And and so you mentioned earlier on that you make every decision Jeff Bezos style, you putting the customer first. But you also mentioned now that the the product is a big focus for you too, especially in the SaaS space. And I know both the customer and the product. There's there's overlap there, obviously. Yeah, huge. You, but but how do you try to stay focused on building the right product while providing good value for the customer without letting that customer guide you down the wrong path if they're making recommendation for uh, features that might not fit within your vision, but yet you want to build something for for the customer because they're so central to your vision? How, how do you balance that out and identify what features to take from your customers and what not to take? Oh uh, well, we. We always develop around what what we'll hear is like a, a kind of a pattern, like you're saying. You, uh, if you've heard it from five, Multiple ten customers, customers uh, it's probably something you should think about. And if you don't acknowledge it, one day it's can some one of those customers might leave, right? So it's all about balancing your feature requests you're getting from your customers and. Prioritizing them right according to your bottom line. How uh, how has your relationship been with your co-founders when it comes time to dividing up equity and splitting up responsibilities and things like that? H- have you found it difficult, especially being childhood friends with these co-founders? No, not at all. Because uh, that's the number one thing you have to have with your partners is trust. So I've known Mark for more than half my life. I've known Matt for more than half my life. We've played sports together. We've studied together. We've had businesses together. Uh, if something were not to be compatible, it would have happened by now. 
So, That's a good sign. So at the start, we were, were very, very transparent with one another. So we're going to reiterate this once again because I, I want to keep track of everything. Dev Buddy, Sasquatch, ma uh, Magazine Chasse et Pêche, more or less, Work Axle. How do you, how do you manage all that? Um, prioritization and um, delegation. So in Dev Buddy, we actually have two part-time workers who uh, work with, with us here in Montreal and they do a lot of the busy work part of the business um, so that we can be more focused on just, you know, maintaining, maintaining our existing clients. So that doesn't really involve that much work per month in comparison to all the other stuff we do. Um, and our team helps us do that, which we're really happy about. Um, and if needed, as time goes on, if we need to scale those teams, we'll do so, um, so that we can keep our focus in the right places. Um, as of the new year, I'm actually going in full time into our projects. So, uh, Matt and Mark and I's projects. So we'll be solely pretty much focused on, um, building out Sasquatch, uh, and work axle, but primarily work axle. Um, right now, like I said before, you know, there will be time periods where Sasquatch, we, we turn it on and off, but we go looking for new projects to do and, and stuff like that. But for, I'd say for 2019, 90% of our attention is in Work Axle and growing the thing. So you, you guys take Work Axle to San Francisco to participate at these conferences there. Uh, a bunch of other startups are there, of course. Um, now you raise significantly less money than than other startups at this point. So how do you stay lean with with the budget that you guys have? Um, well, most of it for the first uh, investment went to development, and about ten percent of it went to like exploring the market. So market a bit of marketing, a bit of money spent on ads, um, explainer videos, um, all outsourced. Um, and then we decided at the very start, so last February, that we wanted to at least go to one conference in the States um, in, in the tech space so that we could really, you know, go see what the playing field is um, and understand where our product stacks up next to other similar types of startups. Um, and so it was interesting when we went to, to San Francisco, uh, we went to this conference named Sa called Saster. Um, and there, there's I think ten thousand attendees. What's it called? Saster. Saster. S A A S T R. So I guess uh, it's for SaaS startups. Exactly. So it's a, it's for anyone who's either a, a founder or working at a SaaS company or um, an enterprise executive or or business owner who's looking to see what the newest tools are in SaaS, right? So it's kind of a a big mix of, of 10,000 people who just know the space really, really well. So a great place to go and get validation for what you're building um, and to be seen by um, the companies who, who should be seeing your product. So you can get face-to-face -face time with pretty high up people at uh, pretty big companies you see uh, online. So uh, what we did there is we, we could have gone and spent you know, uh, 20, 30 grand for a booth in US, so 20, 30 grand US for a booth, plus the plane, plus the hotel. Like we could have done all that, but instead we decided to go as attendees. Um, and what we did is that we, as a little marketing hack we, hack, we just made sure we were, we stood out in the crowd, right? So we wore these like almost like highlighter orange t-shirts with work axle stamped on the back. I forget what the headline was, but, uh, it was good because tons of people, well, we were on Instagram during the event and then tons of people would come up to us saying they either saw us on, like we're just walking around with the yellow shirts. We were four guys in yellow shirts um, or they saw us on Instagram, on the page, on the event handles and all that. Uh, so for instance, we were able to sit down with people very high up who built, who pretty much like built uh, the back end of Salesforce 
back in the day. We were able to talk with the guy who says he, he did that. Like, that's pretty interesting. Uh, and we told him how our methodology for building our product and where we were going with it. Uh, what do you we, have to say about that? Oh, he, he I mean, he loved, he, he thought we were doing everything right in terms of building the product and how, the steps we were taking. Uh, and then, for instance, we, uh, a representative of uh, Indeed, you know, the, the job posting site came up to us randomly uh, uh, to come see our product because, you know, they're always looking at uh, companies in the, the workforce space or hiring space. So we got a lot of exposure to that. Uh, we talked with a lot of company of the companies or the teams that we could integrate with. So there's a lot of complementary products there that could we could work together and add value to each other on both sides. So that was great exposure. And that's where we learned that our product really from a quality standpoint and scalability standpoint and um, ease of use standpoint was there. Like we're on par with what we thought. Um, we were told some areas areas we should pivot on, like the hiring department. Um, and that was already something we were hearing here um, and continue to hear today. And so that's why we've kind of put our hiring module on a back burner for now because it's not ready, like I said at the start, it's not ready for um, to have like a network effect, you know, like you'd have with like a Tinder or a, you know most dating apps or like Uber. Um, so you need to have a lot of businesses using WorkAxle before you can go out and hire through WorkAxle. So those are like when I speak of validation, it's just awesome being in the same room as ten thousand people who get where you're coming from, pretty much doing the same thing as you, but in different ways, and then you get to you know, benchmark yourself against all of those people in a, in a friendly, cool way. So, uh, yeah. Aside, aside from the fact that you live here, what is your reason for starting a startup in Montreal? What other factors went into the decision of staying here? What do you like about the city? Well, the rent. As a founder, your rent is dirt cheap. Um, living quality of life is through the roof. World, like, like a worldwide basis, I'd say like we're, it's very comfortable to live in Montreal. The culture, you you constantly get ex exposed to new people, therefore new ideas, new ways of thinking. A very multicultural um, city, I'd say. Um, great public transportation. So if we're to scale in Montreal and have an office, have employees, it's cheap to do so. If we're to take our outsourcing development model and make it local. Canada provides great grants for that, like on a worldwide stage, I'd say Canada's like up there in terms of helping young companies trying to innovate, innovate. Uh, so yeah, those are all reasons I think uh, it's a great place to start and we just happen to have been from here, so it makes, it, there's no reason to leave, right? We're not gonna go over to Toronto where rent's twice the price and competition is probably twice as steep when we're doing our pilots in Montreal. Yeah, a lot of economic factors make this city very favorable for, for starting your startup. Mm -hmm. um, I know you're an avid book reader. What are some of your, your must-reads that you'd recommend? The first book I read to get me hungry about entrepreneurship was a Four Hour Work Week. I love that book. Uh, it just gives you a different way of thinking of life, and and that anything's pretty much possible. And Tim Ferriss, yeah, by Tim Ferriss, and you don't, you don't, you make make the nine to five whatever you want it to be. You know what I mean? So that got me started and it got me reading a lot. I never read in high school. Or in primary school, I, 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 something I stayed away from almost. Uh, but then at age 18, 19, uh, I started reading via audiobooks. So now I'd say I read about three books a month. Uh, and I'd say my last, my last favorite read was Principles by Ray Dalio. Um, that I'd say the key takeaway from that one was transparency um, and meritocracy. Like that, when you have, like, like I said, like when you have a team, you of of founders, you transparency is number one thing. What comes after that is 
you get what you work for, right? So you, to stay on the team, you have to do, you have to pull your weight. Um, to scale the team, you have to make sure everyone you're bringing on follows that same culture. So his books, the book's pretty much about how culture is such an important factor within any business. And, and growing I, in that way. I remember in that book that um, Ray Dalio says that his his culture was almost so transparent that it, it threw some new employees off at first. That they it was off putting for for new employees because they weren't used to that much honest feedback, good or bad. You, you would hear what you needed to hear, and not everyone could handle that. But in the long run, according to him, that 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 is a culture that breeds. Good behavior, more, better behavior, more innovation, success. Um, if I were to come back from the future and tell you WorkAx was a huge success five years from now, what does that success look like to you? I would say we've we've passed a thousand clients. We've implemented AI into our chat system, into our scheduling system, and into our analytics so that we can start giving prescriptive advice to our customers so that the act like basically we want work Axel to be the best hr consultant you could ever have or, or or workforce management consultant you could ever have so you you sit behind work Axel and work Axel works with you to make both yourself happy yourself less less stressed and your workforce feeling flexible feeling able to communicate um, and having the tools needed to do a good job. Christopher, co-founder and CMO of WorkAxel. To discover more startup founders and companies in Montreal, visit montrealstartups.ca.